Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. If you are a new listener, welcome. Make sure you're subscribing to the show so you'll get the weekly downloads each week. I have a gift for you. A few months ago, I wrote this ebook on how to increase your libido. In the book, I talk about some of the barriers and challenges that get in the way of people reaching their sexual potential. And also I offer some solutions. The ebook is completely free. You can download it in the show notes below. I am very excited about our conversation today. My guest is Dr. Stephen Diamond. I read his book, Anger, Madness, and the Dynamic Psychological Genesis of Violence. I read his book a few years ago, and I found it very interesting because he talks about the connection between our sexuality and creativity. And he talks about how it's important for us to understand our shadow side and how sometimes with repressing our sexual fantasies, we're actually doing ourselves a disservice because they have a message for us. So I, I found the conversation with him fascinating and I hope you'll find the information useful. As I mentioned, our guest is Dr. Stephen Diamond. He's a licensed clinical psychologist psychologist and forensic psychologist. He's practicing in LA. He was a protege and he is a former protege of psychoanalyst Rollo May. And he is the author of Anger, Madness, and the Daimonic, the Psychological Genesis of Violence, Evil, and Creativity. He also has contributed chapters to best-selling anthology, Meeting the Shadow, the hidden power, and the dark side of human nature. Also, spirituality, ultimate concern to textbook contemporary theory and practices in counseling and psychotherapy. And most recently, a chapter titled Existential Explorations of Psychopathology for a forthcoming forensic psychology text. He has been coded in a number of different journals. He has lots of publications. He's a faculty in uh, several local universities. Uh, you can find the link to his information in the show notes and to the full bio. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Stephen Diamond. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am very excited to have Dr. Stephen Diamond on our show. Dr. Diamond, welcome to our show. Thank you very much, Dr. Mwali. I am very excited about this conversation. And I know that I feel like when, when we're talking about this interview before this recording, thinking about how like you have a different, more in-depth angle to these topics. And so I think it's going to be very useful for our listeners to hear your your perspective on sex and sexuality. So I know in your talk, in your book, you talk about dynamic quality of sex. Can you tell us more about that? 
Well, the, the daimonic is an idea that uh, was made popular by Rollo May back in the 1960s. He was a very prominent psychologist and psychoanalyst here in America and my mentor, one of my mentors. And he defined the daimonic as any natural function that has the power to take over the whole person. And he gave us examples of the daimonic, uh, anger, rage, sex, eros, and the uh, craving for power. So these are these are examples of, of the kinds of uh, emotions or passions that we're talking about when we speak of the daimonic in general. Fascinating. Tell us then when you say like take over for our listeners that they're not familiar with that concept, what are we talking about? By taking over, what he's really referring to is the phenomenon of being possessed. That's what I call the possession syndrome. When aspects of ourselves, and you know whether that aspect might be anger, the need for power, or sexuality, when when that aspect is repressed, chronically repressed over time, it accrues the power to take over, to take possession of one's whole personality, at least temporarily, and sometimes longer than temporarily. And it can drive one into often destructive behavior, but it can also, it's also associated with constructive and creative activity. And that's one of the things, one of the interesting things about the idea of the daimonic is that it's it's uh, by definition, it's both constructive and destructive, creative and destructive at the, at the same time. It can be either and it can be both. Well, I, I what I found very fascinating and interesting that you were talking about using this as a, a creative and a kind of like you talk about the connection, its connection to creativity. Can you tell us more about that? How can we channel that to the creativity? Well, so for example, uh, I know uh, Rollo May once said the we tend here in this country in America to repress most of our anger. And and therefore, we're repressing most of our creativity. Now, we can apply that to sexuality as well, to eros, which is kind of a, a broader kind of sexuality. Eros is, is the, uh, was the Greek god of love and passion, and uh, also in, in Roman was uh, Cupid, was the Roman name. But it includes not only sexual love or sexual attraction, but also different forms of love. You know, there are different different aspects of love. So in any case, we can say that to the extent we are repressing our erotic side or we're repressing our sexuality, we're also repressing our creativity at the same time. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is, is that these human emotions, these feelings, these passions, and whether it's anger, rage, sexuality, these tend to exist, these tend to coexist together. And it's we're not very good at separating them from each other, really. Uh, we try to do that. You know, we might try to repress one aspect of the daimonic. We might try to repress just our anger. We might try to repress just our sexuality. But the daimonic has to do with our creativity as well. So when we repress... One aspect of the daimonic, like sexuality, for example, 
we're also tending to repress our capacity for creativity at the same time. Well, I think that's a fascinating point and so accurate because what's what I notice in my practice with many of my clients is they're kind of scared to uh, connect with their erotic energy because they feel like if they connect with that, that will take over their life and they will not be able to be productive. That can be a kind of, they become this promiscuous kind of like they develop out of control sexual behaviors. Well, right. They'll be, they'll be, they're fearful that they'll be possessed by the daimonic in, in the negative sense. Absolutely. And it's interesting that you're saying that repressing it also has the power of us disconnecting with lots of like uh, more constructive aspects of our lives. Yeah, not only does not only does repressing it cut us off from our creativity, but it also makes it paradoxically, it makes it more likely or it makes us more susceptible, I might say, to the possession syndrome, to being possessed by it. You know, it's it's that when Freud talked about uh, the unconscious this is this is also what he was talking about. It was uh, it had to do also with the daimonic. And when Jung, Carl Jung, talked about the shadow, again he was talking about the daimonic. So to the extent that we repress the unconscious or aspects of the unconscious or the daimonic or the shadow, we become more vulnerable, more susceptible to being possessed by it in, in a negative way, in a destructive way. On the other hand, to the extent that we're willing to acknowledge for example, our sexuality, our erotic side, uh, we become actually less likely to become possessed by it destructively. So, but this is a very common fear that that people have in psychotherapy. I've, I've had patients say to me, "Well, but if I were to allow, if I were to allow myself." to feel angry, I might, I might destroy your office and I might go psychotic. I might go crazy and, and not be able to control myself. And, or if I, uh, if I were to let myself really cry and feel my grief or my sadness, I would, I would never be able to stop crying. So this is a very primal fear that people have, and we, we all have at some level, of the daimonic. And it's, it's part of what, uh, it's part of the reason we tend to uh, dissociate it or, or repress it or deny it because we fear it. Absolutely. And I, I get that what, exactly what you're saying with your clients kind of having fear of their anger, kind of expressing emotions, all sorts of emotions. And you're right that kind of like disowning this part of us, it can just put us at risk to just kind of not have the insight when they are taking over our lives. So tell us when, if there are people that are interested, they wanted to connect with their erotic self, the parts that they haven't kind of explored in the path, how can, what are some of the ways to build that relationship? To build the relationship with the, the daimonic, in a sense, or with, yes. the, with the erotic with the aspect erotic, of the daimonic? Yes, erotic aspect of the daimonic. Yeah, I, you know, I think it has to do primarily with consciousness so, and mindfulness. So it, it's a matter of become, allowing oneself to become aware of, of the daimonic and become aware of that, that particular aspect of the daimonic, let's say one's uh, erotic self or one's sexuality, and to uh, feel it and to let oneself really experience it and, and sort of tolerate it. Now, I will 
point out that from my from my point of view, when you're working with a daimonic, there's a, a huge difference between allowing yourself to feel it, to experience it, to be, become aware of it, and acting it out. And I, I think that that's the same. Uh, that also applies when it comes to the sexual component of the daimonic. So. The challenge is, is, is initially anyway, to just allow oneself to experience it and to feel it. In other words, to have, have, have whatever fantasies one is having, whatever emotions or attractions or excitements one, one, is, one might be experiencing, but not necessarily act upon it, just to become aware of it and just to experience it. You know, the, the choice about whether to act upon it, and, and that's even different than acting it out, and I, and I can talk about that a little if you want me to, but, but the, the choice about whether to act upon it or not, I think comes a little later. I think first is the exploration, the, the psychological exploration of it, and then the choice about whether to act upon it and how to do that uh, I think comes later once one has a better sense of what it is one really wants. Well, I agree with you that I feel many, many people, they judge themselves for their thoughts and fantasies. And even if the fantasy that they have is quote unquote common, they have this kind of like a reaction to it. I love that you're talking about noting those fantasies, observing it. When you're thinking, of, when you're talking about that quality, do you find it helpful when people kind of engage with it? Like meaning that they can like use it for masturbation or that would be part of acting upon it? Uh, no, I, I think that, I think that you, you doing things with your own body is, is, uh, is, is one thing and, and engaging in other behaviors with other people is, is kind of another level of things. So no, masturbation is something that that's up to the individual and uh, that's not necessarily acting it out, but it can be. So just to say something about this idea of acting out, a- acting out is by de- the way we use it in psychology and, and also psychoanalytically. Acting out is a form, is a, is a defense mechanism. So it's a way of avoiding something or actually not experiencing something. So just to give an example. So, for example, let's say somebody is very fearful of intimacy and, and fearful of real sexuality with a partner. Instead, they might get stuck in masturbatory fantasies. And, and that might be a way of acting out their, their need, their sexual need in a, in a non-relational way. And so, in that sense, that behavior is allowing them to avoid they're using their sexual energy in such a way, they're expressing it in such a way that they can, that they're avoiding a sexual relationship or an intimate relationship. Those necessarily aren't always the same, as we know, but they're avoiding a, a, an intimate relationship with a partner, possibly. So what I'm hearing, it sounds like that it's a matter of what is, what are you doing this behavior as a service to? Is it going to contribute to the struggle that you're having or it's addressing or doing the opposite of it? Because one other thing that comes to my mind when, when I hear you talking about this is many of my clients have fear of their fantasy, especially when they are in a monogamous relationship. They're thinking about, okay, I ha- I'm in a monogamous relationship. 
I'm planning to remain in this relationship. And then they have fantasies about next door neighbors and they feel if they are immersing on those fantasies, then that will increase their chance of acting out on those. But I, I, it's usually when I hear that with my clients, I wonder, as you said, what is, what, what is underlying issues? But are, do you feel like, is it like when we are obsessing about particular fantasy, if we are immersing in that, will that increase the chance of us acting out on that? Well, again, the, I, I think that the, the fantasy realm uh, has to do with the daimonic as well. So we all, I mean, it's human nature to fantasize. We all have an imagination and uh, that's what that's what underlies our creativity. So to fantasize about someone or doing something is one thing. To do it is something else again. And so that becomes the real question is, if, if one denies the, the fantasy or the impulse, then one becomes more susceptible to destructive possession by the daimonic. In other words, it's more likely to act it out. But if one can accept the fantasy and acknowledge it, but at the same time not necessarily choose to act upon it, then it becomes, it becomes a, an exercise in discerning. It's an exercise in discernment discerning what one's intentionality really is. In other words, what is it that I really want? All right, I'm, I have, I'm having this fantasy, but as you say, what is that fantasy really about? What is it, what, and what is it that I really want? What do I really want to do with that fantasy? You know, it, it's pausing between stimulus and response in order to make a, a choice that's, and a choice that uh, I suppose preferably um, more constructive than destructive. Well, I'm glad that you are highlighting that. And I think sometimes people, they don't give themselves enough credit about that. Okay, if I have a fantasy, it doesn't mean that I, I'm going to act on those. I feel as, as you mentioned, the opposite is true that I have clients that they, they do things that they feel is out of character for them. And they kind of like end up in therapy thinking, how did I end up there? But I feel if you have awareness, and noting their thoughts and fantasies and allowing them to be present, that would be a, a way for us to be kind of develop more insight about our internal processes. One thing that's interesting that at times I hear definitely from my m- more monogamous couples that I work with, that they, want, they don't want their partner have any fantasy. Like part of their fidelity agreement is I don't want them, whether he, she, them have uh, thoughts about anyone else. But what I'm hearing from you is that it seems like the fantasy and this internal process and creativities are kind of connected. And uh, so is it possible to shut down our fantasies, but still be remain connected to our creativity? Well, that's, that's the problem. I think if, if one does deny one's, one's fantasies, one's sexual impulses, one is denying the daimonic in general, and then there's a there's a price to pay for that. And part of that price might be uh, a lot a loss of creativity or a loss of energy, life energy, elan vital in general. Yeah, I I think it's it makes more sense to acknowledge our fantasies and and kind of try to work with them. And that's you know one of the things we try to do in in psychotherapy is is work with the fantasies and what the meaning of the fantasies might be and what they might be pointing toward. Now, you know, from a Jungian point of view, for example, when we have a fantasy, let's say, about a, a certain 
person, a member of the opposite sex or the same sex or what have you, that fantasy could be, could have something or say, be trying to tell us something about our own psyche and what, what we need to do to become more balanced and whole psychologically and emotionally as an individual. And so, you know, that's using the fantasy on, on a different level rather than acting it out or acting upon it. We, we are taking a look at what it might really mean from a depth psychology point of view, what it might mean symbolically. You know, for example, Jung talked about the anima and the animus. And these are, uh, I find these very helpful in, in doing therapy. And, you know, the, the, for those who aren't familiar with them, the anima is the sort of the feminine side of feminine psyche of a man. And the animus is more the masculine psyche of a, of a woman. Now that, you know, that's, uh, um, I don't want to get too stereotypical about it, but the point is that, so when we fantasize about uh, let's say someone of the opposite sex, we could be really longing or feeling the need to develop our own anima or animus further and integrate that more into our own personality. And that's very different from taking a fantasy and, and interpreting it very literally and concretely and then acting upon it. Well, I, I like that perspective. So what I'm hearing, it sounds like it can be a source of insight and it's almost a gift when we have this ideas and we have this fantasies because it helps us to understand about the part of ourselves that are not necessarily present in our conscious mind. But I agree with you that sometimes people, when they develop this obsessions and they think about, okay, I'm going to act on it. And sometimes when they act on these fantasies, they find them not fulfilling and disappointing because they, they were, did not address the underlying message those fantasies had. Well, that, that's right. And so, yeah, they, they are potentially helpful in, you know, in our, in our own individuation. But that depends upon us, and that depends upon how we choose to deal with and address these fantasies. But to have fantasies is to be human. To I mean, we, we are sexual creatures. We are creatures who get angry. We are creatures who have a need for power and control, which is one of the, one of the, one of the most prominent issues that comes up in, in relationships. So it's not a question of trying to deny that we have these daimonic impulsions or emotions. It's, 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 acknowledging, it's acknowledging them and then using them to become more balanced and whole people. And also when you kind of like source of energy for us, this daimonic qualities really resonates with me because sometimes I work with individuals that they've been on quote-unquote sex addiction treatment and the way that they resolve the issue is through kind of completely disconnecting with their erotic self and it shows up in their presentation at times that they just like I feel like at times I experience people like lost their kind of like vitality and uh, that that I feel hasn't addressed the main issue. Yeah. So you're saying that the, these these patients that you're speaking of tend to then deny 
their their sexual being? Yes. So the way that they address that kind of that quote unquote, you know, addiction is a loaded term. The addiction is like they disown their sexuality completely. They say, okay, I'm committing to abstinence. I'm not going to think about sex, all of that thing. And it impacts, I feel, the whole being of the person. And I know that. Well, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, because look, addiction, can someone be become addicted to sex? Yes. Now, it's not, it's obviously not necessarily physiological addiction, although there's a, maybe a level of that. It's a psychological addiction, but it's a form of possession. When we talk about possession, that's addiction is a good example of that. So the person is possessed by the daimonic. They're possessed by their sexuality. They're not in possession of themselves. They're not in possession of their own sexuality. They are being possessed by it. They are driven by it. And now, if their solution to that is to, is to try to simply shut it down, then absolutely what they'll be also shutting down is their vitality, their creative energy. Yes. And their, their, their creativity. I'm glad that, uh, that you, you highlight these kind of like more kind of like, is it like daimonic part of people as you normalize that in your book and you talk about as part of being human experience. And I know that sometimes when we're addressing that, what, what drove this possession for, for people? Like when, what, what was the leading cause for them to have this preoccupation and get involved in this sort of addiction? That, that's when the last, lasting change changes happen. It's at least that's been my experience. So, yeah, in other words, uh, when they understand better the, the meaning of the of the compulsion? Yes, yes, that, that, at least that's been my experience versus doing a quick fix of, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I'm not going to do that. Well, I mean, that's okay. You know, I'm not going to do that, at least right now, can be okay, so long as it's not, I'm not going to acknowledge the daimonic. Those are two different things. Again, I'm not going to do that means I'm not going to act upon it. That can be useful, but that's different than denying the daimonic. That's different than denying the impulsion to do these things or the fantasies. You have to address those. You have to be willing to tolerate them. See, that's part of the work is learning to tolerate these feelings or these fantasies without acting upon them necessarily or without repressing them, dissociating. Do you feel like when people that their kind of sexual urges and behavior has been in a kind of a more of a legal issue, like when people are attracted to minors, those those population, is there a way for them to manage kind of acknowledging it, but not acting on those behaviors? Because what I hear often from colleagues is that I don't work with individuals who are attracted to minors, but I'm kind of curious, is that something that people can address with kind of just acknowledging the fantasies and not acting on those? Well, I think, yeah, that would certainly be part of the psychotherapeutic work with, let's say, a pedophile, someone who's attracted to children, sexually attracted to children, is exactly that, is helping them try to understand exactly what that attraction is about. What that, what that says about them and their own psyche and what needs to happen within their own psyche rather than acting it out in the world. So that would be, I think, the, the uh, main thrust of the work with someone like that. You know, again, to go back to uh, Jung's idea of anima and animus, the idea here is that when... When we fall in love with someone, and that's uh, obviously uh, Eros we're talking about now, 
when we fall in romantic love with someone, what is really happening psychologically? Well, from a Jungian point of view, what's happening is that we are projecting our anima or animus onto this other individual. We are projecting our inner woman or our inner man onto the other person. And we're projecting it, again, projection is a defense mechanism. So why do we project it? Well, we project it because we don't want to have to do the work of developing it in ourselves. In other words, for a man... Uh, um, for a man to become more whole and more balanced, more individuated, as, as Jung called it, it requires coming into better relationship with his feminine side, his inner woman. And so the work, a lot of the work that needs to be done is inner work, is inner work on integrating the so-called feminine, which, you know, for Jung had to do certainly with uh, emotionality and, and that sort of thing. It, it has to do with coming to terms with the, with the feminine in oneself and uh, into better relationship with it. So sometimes when people are working in therapy, when they're in maybe a obsessive kind of relationships or in romantic uh, relationships that uh, maybe are not working out because the other person is uh, not available or whatever it might be, part of the work there is well, what is it that you might be projecting onto this other person? What what are you trying to get vicariously through this other person that you have not yet developed in yourself and integrated in yourself? Well, you you have a, and you had a very prolific career and you wrote a lot about the concepts of shadow and daimonic. So tell us if our listeners want to read about your work, they want to perhaps work with you. What are some of the places that they can find your content? Well, anybody interested in, in my work can go to my website, which is drstephendiamond.com. And that's uh, D-R-S-T-E-P-H-E-N-D-I-A-M-O-N-D. Also, anyone who's interested in learning more about the daimonic, I wrote about that in my book, which was published first in 1996. The title of that book is Anger, Madness, and the Daimonic. The Psychological Genesis of Violence, Evil, and Creativity. And of course, in there, it does. It, I do speak of uh, some of the things I just discussed regarding anima and animus and masculine and feminine, because that's all part of the daimonic. Excellent. Dr. Diamond, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was very, at least, useful for me, and I'm sure many of our listeners will benefit from your information. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity. I hope you found the conversation useful. I love that Dr. Diamond talked about understanding our sexual fantasies because I feel that's how we develop insight to our inner world. I think about my fantasies all the time and the meaning of it. And at times I talk about it with my own therapist. Yes, therapists have their own therapist. And I find that I learn things about myself that I didn't necessarily consciously knew about it. So my invitation for you is to also be curious about your sexual fantasies and urges and give yourself credit of you're not going to act on them if you are no them. As Dr. Diamond was talking about, that oftentimes when we are trying to repress them, that's that's the time that they take charge of our life. Anyhow, if you've been listening to our show, I hope you're enjoying my show and I would really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes and Stitchers. It means 
a lot to me and it will help us to reach a broader audience. All right, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.